version of the Canto of the Hypocrites, Canto 23 of Inferno. Dante and Virgil have slid down almost unwittingly into this pouch. Virgil has saved Dante from the demons attacking from the fifth pouch. They've ended up in the College of the Hypocrites, a group of people who wear gilded leaden cloaks, who are forced to walk around a circle and on top of Caiaphas, Annas, and perhaps others from the Council of the Pharisees, around and around this ditch of hypocrisy among the sins of fraud. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough. This is the podcast, Walking with Dante. I hope that made sense, because if it made sense, it means you've been on the journey with us so far. If not, you might want to go back and catch more of this journey or just drop in here. We're at the back of Canto 23. We're at lines 127 through 148. We have seen Virgil stop, slack-jawed, and look at a figure, Caiaphas, who is crucified on the ground. The hypocrites have to walk over Caiaphas and apparently Annas, as well as others perhaps in the bottom of this pit. It is the sixth of the Malabolgia, the sixth of the evil pouches that make up the Great Land's of fraud, the eighth circle of hell. We're in lower hell. We're going to move out and take out from the hypocrites now, but not before one last humiliation of poor Virgil. So here we are, Canto 23, lines 127 through 148. When Virgil got his voice back, he said to the friar, If it doesn't displease you, and if you are allowed... Please tell me if along the right-hand wall there's some sloping passage that can enable us to make an exit from down here without relying on those black angels to come to this bottom and provide us transportation. That friar replied, What? closer than you hope. Up ahead is one of the ridges that starts at the largest circle and moves down over these savage valleys, except for this one, where it's all tumbled down and doesn't span it. You can climb up over the rocky rubble lying along the bottom and piled up the side. My leader stood there for a moment with his head lowered. Then he said, that one over there who hooks the sinners gave us bad advice about this matter. And the friar, once in Bologna, I heard something said about the devil's many vices. He is a liar and the father of lies. Then my leader took off with big strides, troubled a bit and looking very angry. I too parted from the burdened souls, following in the footprints of those dear feet. The end of the passage and Virgil's final humiliation. We're gonna talk about the revelation here that Virgil reaches. We're gonna talk about the hypocritical response from the friar. I want to talk about some structural bits of the 23rd Canto. And finally, I want to talk about that last line, following in the footprints of those dear feet. What in the world is going on at the end of all of this? Let's get to it. 
There is a lingering question from the last episode of this podcast, and it has to do with Caiaphas. Remember, he's crucified on the ground, horizontally, not vertically, crucified there, and they have to walk on top of him. And the lingering question is this, why is Caiaphas a hypocrite? The answer to this is more difficult than you might think. It's going to require some speculation, and I can't actually reach any firm answers. You might think, well, you know, Caiaphas is probably going to be in hell because Dante's a Christian, and here's this guy who said, you know, we might as well put Jesus to death rather than the rest of us have to suffer for going against the Romans or being thought to foment revolution. Okay, fair enough. That might be good enough, but then why isn't he with the treacherous? Or why isn't he with other kinds of fraudsters? Or why isn't he with the violent against their neighbors? Why is he here amongst the hypocrites? That is a large question. Is it that he's a hypocrite because he spoke the truth without meaning to? In that case, then he does really connect to Virgil, who saw from afar messianic truths and maybe saw from afar this notion that one person has to die in the Aeneid for the many. If that's the case, then we're going to have to go out in another direction. We're going to have to ask the question, is Virgil a hypocrite? Oh, and now see, it gets a little sticky. If Caiaphas is a, is a hypocrite because he spoke the truth, but then, you know, didn't really know he was speaking it, but he was close to Revelation, but not, and that's what Virgil is, then is Virgil staring at him because Virgil is a hypocrite. Can we point back to Virgil's overconfidence with the demons in the pouch of Beretry, the fifth pouch, as an example of the hypocrisy of Virgil? That idea has been advanced in commentary. I find it a little difficult to think that this canto would end with, I followed in those deer feet, if Virgil were being accused of hypocrisy. Why else could Caiaphas be a hypocrite? Here's, I think, where I come down to, at least right now. Caiaphas used religious truth to advance some kind of political good that led to the destruction of some people. And therefore, he is like Catalano and Lodoringo. They all practiced a kind of religion that allowed them to further factionalism and that led to violence. I think that might be how Caiaphas is, in fact, a hypocrite, that like Catalano and Loringo, he was supposed to be in charge of the truth, but instead he used religion to further factionalism in order to save his own skin and the skin of those allied with him. I don't have to push that very far into our world to show you how hypocrisy can be dangerous for us, not just the matter of don't buy a Maserati or waste your money while I'm over here collecting your money and spending it, or don't uh, engage in sexual immorality while I'm over here jumping in bed with everybody's wife. No, there might be a kind of hypocrisy that is much more dangerous, that fans the flames of sectionalism in the cloak of religious truth. If that's the case, then Caiaphas is as dangerous as Catalano 
and Lodoringo. But there probably are other explanations for Caiaphas as a hypocrite. It's a little bit of a stumbling point. We would expect, again, to find Caiaphas down here somewhere in Inferno. It's just here amongst the hypocrites that suddenly we have to explain it. Okay, so now off to the passage for this episode. The passage starts out when he, it's he in the Florentine, but I said Virgil in the translation just because we're breaking this thing up into segmented passages. So when he, Virgil, got his voice back because he's been staring at Caiaphas, he said to the friar, if it doesn't displease you and if you were allowed, now there's a curiosity right here, but let me finish it. If it doesn't displease you and if you were allowed, please tell us if along the right-hand wall there's some sloping passage that can enable us to make an exit from down here. The you that he uses, that Virgil uses, is in the plural. So he's talking to both Catalano and Lodoringo, even though Catalano is the only one replying. And it says, he said to the friar, and yet the plural you gets used. So Virgil's talking to both of them, and only one of them is replying. I think this is all going back to the doubling in the passage, but we're going to talk about that in a bit. I think there's just so much doubling in every direction in this passage. So Virgil wants to know, is there a way out? Can we get up because of those bridges? Remember, the spokes of the wheel or the spider web image of all of these bridges running from the largest of the evil pouches of the Malabolja on down toward the central pit. And it's like a big spoked wheel. And Virgil's wanting to know if there's any way to get up somehow so that they can get over another one of those bridges and over this pit. And he finds out, in fact, that's impossible. Why? Well, that's what is the big revelation. He says it can enable us to get out of here without relying on those black angels. Virgil uses the words angels, by the way, which really jumps out of the text. Angels here. So those demons Virgil is referencing as angels. They are fallen angels. They are demons. There are some commentators, and I hate to kick Hollander, but he's one of them. There are some commentators who claim that this is kind of a weird use of the word because there are only two sets of angels in hell. They're the neutrals up there who didn't make a choice between God and Satan. Way up, remember the neutrals running around following their banner and being stung? And then there are the rebellious angels at the walls of Dis. I don't know what Hollander thinks these are. These have to be fallen angels. They have to be that because they can't be tormentors created by God specifically to punish the damned. If they are, then God can create a bad thing. And that is not theologically possible. It is not within the scope of Christian theology. It's in the scope of other theologies, but it is not in the scope of Christian theology to be able to say that God can create a bad thing. So that he says angels is just revealing the theology of demons. There are fallen angels. He actually says black angels, angelineri, because we know that that was their color back there in the fifth ditch. So he says, I don't want to rely on them to get us out of here. Is there another way to get us out of here? that one replied, and this is Catalano speaking back, a lot closer than you hope. Up ahead is one of the ridges that starts at the largest circle and moves down over these savage valleys. Those are the spokes coming down. And they go over the tops like bridges, like arched bridges, over all of these valleys 
except, he says, for this one, where it's all tumbled down and doesn't span it. You can climb up over the rocky rubble lying along the bottom of the piled up side. So here's what we just found out. The path is probably narrowed here in the sixth pouch. Remember, they're walking along the straightened or narrowed path because all the bridges are down and there is a lot of rubble. Remember way, way back when the demons first approach Virgil and Dante. Evil tale, Malakota says, if you go with us, it's true that this bridge is down, but we can take you to where the next bridge spans the pit. Now we know that that was a lie. All the bridges are down over hypocrisy. We should just stop and ask a question, a thematic question right here. Are the bridges down broken over hypocrisy for thematic reasons? Is there something about hypocrisy that has caused the bridges to fall? And that is an interesting question. You can think a little bit more about that. Why in this pouch amongst these people are the bridges down? Why aren't they down with, I don't know, the soothsayers? Why aren't they down? down with the Simoniacs? Why aren't they down with the Baraders? Why aren't they down with the Flatterers, the Seducers, or even any of the sinners ahead of us? There are even more dire sins yet ahead of us in the pouches of fraud. Why aren't they down there? What about hypocrisy brings the bridges down? Is there some thematic going on there? And it's something that you can posit for a while. Stay inside the text. Think about the text itself. Don't jump out and think about your world and hypocrites in your world. Stay inside the text and think it out. There might be be reasons. They're all going to be pretty speculative, but we can also say we can now explain so much in comedy. We can now go all the way back to the fifth canto. Remember when Virgil and Dante climb up onto that ruined pinnacle at Lust and they see the lustful out on the wind back in Canto 5, line 34? Now we know that there's been a ruin of hell. Remember the slope of the violent, the scree-filled slope the Minotaur sits on in Canto 12 at lines 4 and 32. It's referred to as all broken down. Remember Malakota's reference to the timing of all of this? It happened exactly X number of years ago, which if we dated it properly to 1300, led us to the crucifixion and herring of hell, we can now date it all completely. We now put the whole story together. There was some kind of earthquake, some kind of trembling, some kind of shaking of the ground. Places in hell fell apart at lust before the violent. And here, these bridges all came down when Christ descended into limbo and pulled the Old Testament saints, the worthy of the Old Testament, out of limbo. We can read the whole thing now. And we've got an entire explanation, which only tells you that you have to read comedy forward and backward in order to put it all together. That's why comedy is so complicated. It must be read forward and backward all at the same moment. And we're not there yet. We gotta wait to Purgatorio and Paradiso, but we you find out you have to read it vertically too. But that's another matter entirely. We're gonna find out that cantos read vertically up and down the 
third canto of Paradiso Purgatorio and Inferno. We're going to find out we can make vertical readings as well as forward and backward readings inside of comedy. It's so complicated, <laughs> but we're going to save that complication for a long time in the future. But what we now know is that Evil Tale, Malakota, lied that there is not another bridge over this pit. We shouldn't be surprised, should we, that demons lie. In fact, our delightful little Friar Catalano is going to point that out. Let's get to that. Virgil seems again slack-jawed, although not marveling this time. Now he seems sad or guilty or embarrassed. My leader stood there for a moment with his head lowered. Then he said, that one over there who hooks the sinners, that is, evil tale Malakota, gave us bad advice about this matter because he said, just follow us a little farther. Remember the Decurion? Follow them along the ledge and they'll get you to the next bridge. There is no next bridge over hypocrisy. So he gave us bad advice about this matter. And then Catalano replies, Once in Bologna, I heard said something about the devil's many vices. He is a liar and the father of lies. This is so nasty. He is quoting the Gospel of John, chapter 8, line 44. Jesus is arguing with the, the rabbis of his day. Jesus is arguing with them that they don't follow God properly. Um, he's saying that basically you don't follow Abraham as your father. Abraham would have recognized who I am as the Messiah and would have responded properly, but you don't. Instead, and they say, oh, but our father was Abraham. And he says, no, 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 that's not who your father is, but you certainly father uh, follow your father father. Um, and just starting at verse 42 of chapter 8 of the Gospel of John, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me for I came from God and now I am here. I did not come on my own, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot accept my word. You are from your father, the devil, and you choose to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks according to his nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. There it is. This nasty little friar quotes the Bible, the Gospels, at Virgil, who could never have read the Gospels. And you'll notice that he says, once in Bologna, I heard something said. Bologna? No. He's being really a jerk. He know, he's got to know. He's quoting the New Testament. If he doesn't, then he's really, really dumb. He knows he's quoting the New Testament. He knows he's throwing it at Virgil. And now we finally have, I think, the explanation for painted people or tinted people. Remember way back when we first came upon the hypocrites, it said we came amongst a dipinta people, a painted or a tinted people. And I said, just hold that in your mind until later. I think this is it. The sacred teachings are their nasty veneer. I mean, this is really nasty to use the Bible, to use the New Testament as a way to poke at Virgil, 
particularly because Virgil may be in pain. He's embarrassed. His head is down. He believed a demon. And he's also been slack-jawed marveling at Caiaphas, who maybe is a representation of Virgil's eternal exile. Virgil is in pain in this passage, and this moron uses the Bible as a way to needle him, to poke at him. And this is how they're painted. They use sacred teaching as their nasty veneer. I surely don't have to point out people who use all kinds of sacred texts as a way to not, in fact, lead others toward truth or understanding or compassion or love, but use it as a way to just poke holes in people and needle them to death. It's the nastiest bit of hypocrisy. Let's come out to the end of the passage. It says, my leader took off with big strides, troubled a bit and looking angry. I too parted from those burdened souls following in the prints of those dear feet. Okay, leaving off that last line, let's just look at the structure of this entire canto. Derling, the Dantista, the late Dantista Robert Derling, points out that the pacing in the canto is important to see structurally. That is, at the beginning of the canto, Dante and Virgil walk at a normal speed as they're walking along and Dante's looking back, expecting the demons to chase them, and they have that whole thing about, if I were led glass. I wouldn't mirror your thoughts more. Remember, they're walking normally. Then they slide down into the pouch. So now they're going fast. Then they resume a normal pace at the bottom, but they're outpacing all the hypocrites in their leaden cloaks. They stand still. Then they walk slowly. They stand still to let the hypocrites catch up to them. Then they walk slowly. Then they stand still again to look at Caiaphas and for Virgil to marvel and all of that and for this to happen. And then Virgil walks off fast. So just think about the structure of that. Walks normally, slides fast, walks normally, stands still, walks slowly, stands still, walk fast. It's kind of beautifully structured as a piece of architecture across the entire canto. And in fact, this entire canto is beautifully structured. It is doubled from end to beginning. If you go back to the beginning, what happened? They slip away from the demons and it says they walked along one in front, the other following like mendicant Franciscans going down a road. There's the two of them walking. What happens here at the end? They walk along with Virgil in front and the pilgrim following in the footprints of those dear feet. This whole canto is so full of doubles. The two hypocrites who speak in one voice, who talk to each other, who then turn and talk to the pilgrim and Dante. All the doublings we talked about in the last episode of this podcast. There are so many doubled references throughout this canto. And isn't it interesting that this is a canto that breaks the narrative over the canto break, right? We start out by talking about the demons and getting away from them. And we're still in that baritry sequence. And then they slide down the slope. And then we get into the hypocrite sequence. And so we might think, oh, the plot, it goes way over into 23. And then we get the new pouch kind of at the third a third mark into 23 and out. But in the end, if you look back on it, even though the plot went over the canto break, Dante has structured all of 23, despite the narrative running over the canto break, as a single architectural unit about 
doubling from the very get-go as they walk along like mendicant Franciscans down a road, one in front, the other following, all the way out to the back. In other words, what I'm trying to tell you is the canto is structured and the narrative is structured and they're not actually structured together. They're structured on top of each other. Or how's this? You have to think geometrically rather than linearly. You have to think spatially. You have to think in the third dimension and realize that the plot is moving as a linear function and then the cantos are also being structured as devices and suddenly you'll realize you're thinking in a cube, not in a straight line, or <laughs> you're thinking dimensionally. And I think that's what's brilliant about these cantos. So let's talk about the troubling and difficult last line. Dante takes off from the burdened souls following in the footprints of those dear feet. Two things. First, Virgil is making footprints. We're back to that corporeal problem again. It is constant and incessant inside of Inferno. Dante is going to start in Cantos Ahead of Us to address the problem. He will not fully address it until we hit Purgatorio, but it is still here. How does a soul make footprints? Is Virgil weighted? If he's weighted, then he can make footprints. Surely the souls feel weight. Caiaphas feels the weight. I don't know if he feels the weight of the hypocrites, but he certainly feels the weight of their gilded leaden cloaks when they walk over the top of him. So there's the weight, but that weight I can explain. I can explain it by the cloaks. This weight? I don't know. Can souls make footprints? It seems as if they can, and it seems as if Dante is still arguing for the corporeality of the damned, which is always difficult. How does a soul take up mass? And if it takes up mass, how much is that mass? And how does it take up dimensionality then? <laughs> Believe it or not, Dante's going to answer this question. It's just going to take him a while. And right now, we still seem to see Virgil as at least partially physical. Let's continue on with the question of those dear feet. The canto ends with Dante seemingly very affectionate toward Virgil. It opened with Virgil affectionate toward Dante, grabbing him like a mother with a child with the house on fire, sliding down the slope. And here at the end, the affection seems to be fully returned. Why is that? There's several reasons, and, and I'm not going to come to any conclusions, as I often don't. I'm just going to offer you several answers to why is it those dear feet that Dante is talking about. One, perhaps Dante is guilty. <laughs> Sounds funny, right? But perhaps our poets are feeling a little guilt at this point. I mean, ever since Manto and Virgil having to rewrite the Aeneid with the soothsayers, Dante's been giving Virgil a hard time. He gave him a hard time there and said, you know, this is the true story of the founding of Mantua, and if you ever read it different anywhere else, don't believe it. Well, the only other place you would read it different is in the Aeneid. So Virgil disses his own work back there with the soothsayers, and since then, Dante's been on a tear at Virgil. Virgil's been overconfident about the demons. He believed Malacoda. He believed... <laughs> 
<laughs> he believed the demons were right about the next bridge. He saw Caiaphas and maybe realized his own eternal exile in the figure of Caiaphas who got close to the truth but didn't actually uh, act on or was not able to embrace the truth. I mean, man, Dante the Poet has set this up, and he's been hard on Virgil for a while now. And it could be that Dante's feeling a little bit guilty and feeling like he has to redeem his relationship with Virgil. After all, Virgil is the one who saved Dante, not Ovid, not Lucan, not Stasius, not Homer. It's Virgil who comes and saves Dante in the dark wood. And I talked about this a bit in the last episode of the podcast. I think that Dante feels that Virgil is the classical bridge from philosophy to theology. And I think that Dante feels that Virgil is what saves him from a more secular poetry that he threatens to write at the end of the Vita Nuova, the new life, and at the end of the convivio, well, the unfinished convivio, the banquet, a, a secular philosophical love poetry. I think that he sees Virgil as this figure that bridges from that to Christian theology and helps him make that transition. And so those dear feet are in fact kind of Dante's recognition of his obligation to Virgil. Robert Hollander suggests that there's another reading for this, and it has to do with Stasius's Thebiad. Stasius's Thebiad, the great epic about Thebes, ends with a reference to Virgil. The very end of the Thebiad comes to this point that says, do not try to surpass the divine Aeneid, but at a distance, follow and always revere its footprint. That, Robert Hollander argues, is behind this line that as Stasius says in his great work, look, I'm never going to beat Virgil. So don't even think I'm trying to beat Virgil here in this epic. Don't think I'm even trying to do that. Virgil is Virgil. Virgil is the great masterpiece. You know, just follow in its imprint. And you can hear the reference here. In other words, this bit here is saying, listen, I've brought Virgil in for some hard time, but I can't outdo Virgil. In the end, I will never outdo the Aeneid. So I recognize that. You know that. I know that. I'm going to quote Stasius. I'm going to prove that he knew it too. We're all going to realize that although I've carried on with Virgil and smacked him about a bit, even perhaps showing him naked as he falls down that slope, even though I've done all that humiliating stuff with Virgil, I still know I can't outdo him. The question here would be, does Dante think we think he's been trying to outdo Virgil? That's a speculative question. I don't have an answer to it. But man, if that's the truth, talk about hubris. There's a lot of hubris behind my thinking somehow that our poet, who is before comedy at best a middling poet, is trying to outdo Virgil. Hmm. Interesting, and certainly part of the growing notion Dante has of his own talent, which will become overwhelming ahead of us in the rest of comedy. Or 
Is it that following in those deer footprints, following behind Virgil, walking along, is finally a restoration of the proper order of comedy? Virgil in front, the pilgrim behind, and this proper order of the two of them anticipates the writing contest that Dante is about to get into with Ovid. Because right ahead of us lies the great writing contest in which Dante is going to claim, hey, Ovid ain't so great. I'm a lot better. And by establishing the proper order of Virgil and Dante, Dante is now free to take on Ovid. But to get there, you got to get farther on in the podcast with me. So subscribe to this podcast. Wasn't that a hook? Well, subscribe to this podcast, rate it, stick with me. We're about to turn from Virgil to Ovid. I really think that Ovid is more the foundation of the subsets of fraud, even than Virgil. Virgil comes in for a bit of poetic slapping and poetic rivalry. But Ovid, well, Dante uses Ovid dramatically inside the circles of fraud. And not only does he use him, we already saw this, right, with the sidelong look of envy, which is right out of the metamorphoses. Not only does he use Ovid to structure and explain part of the motivations inside the subsets of fraud, ultimately he's going to claim he can outdo Ovid, do him a lot better, something that he doesn't feel that he can claim about Virgil. So to get there, come back. I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is Walking with Dante. Walking with Dante.